If you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, please turn with me to Psalm 96. One of the joys of being part of prayerfully putting together a meeting like this, a service, is watching what the Lord does in putting it all together. We plan certain things, we pick songs, we have someone lead at the table, but there's a lot that we really just find out on the morning of, what the Lord has put on Don's heart this morning, what the Lord has put on Steve's heart to pray for, etc. And it's really enjoyable to watch to see how the Lord puts it all together. And so what we're going to find in Psalm 96 today, I think, really fits quite well with what Don just talked about, about giving God our best in light of what he's done for us. We can't measure what he's done for us. And so in response, the question is, what then will we give him in return? This morning, we're talking about worship. It's a little topic, topic of worship, a central and significant theme in Scripture, but one that, if we're honest, sometimes it's hard to really pin down. What is it exactly? We talk about it a lot in the church, to worship the Lord, worship Him in spirit and truth, and we say, okay, what, what exactly, though, is it to worship? It won't surprise you, because it's so important in the church that many definitions have been offered and articulated through the years. I want to give you a few now to think about. One author writes this. He says, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open up the heart to the love of God, and to to devote the will to the purpose of God. It's quite comprehensive. (laughs) Basically, that is everything, right? Here's another one. Worship is communion with God, in which believers, by grace, center their mind's attention and their heart's affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to his greatness and his word. One more. Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are many definitions of worship, and you may have your own. But here's what I want us to notice as we begin looking at this psalm this morning, that however we define and articulate worship, one thing is very clear. In fact, it must be clear. And that's that ultimately, worship is not about us. It's about our God. And sometimes we confuse us, and when I say we, I mean the church in general, and start conflating and thinking about worship in terms of a feeling that we have or an experience that we enjoy. And don't get me wrong, certainly worship can be involved with an experience and can produce emotion, but it is so much more than that. When we boil worship just down to an experience or a feeling, the question becomes what happens when we don't have that experience? Or when that feeling is fleeting, all of a sudden we ask, have I worshipped? Is it ever the case that we leave a time like this, a time of corporate worship, and we don't feel so much uplifted and encouraged as we feel convicted? Is that less worship than the times we skip out of here with joy? The Bible would say no. Worship is a response to God's self-revelation. 
God says, here's what I'm like, here's what I've done, and God's people say, wow, we respond, whether it's with submission or obedience or tears or laughter or joy or confession or whatever the case may be, that is worship. Worship, it starts with God. It responds to God's revelation. It's directed at God in ways appropriate for God. Worship is empowered by God, brags about God, is offered by those who belong to God as they're drawn to God to become more like God. It's about him. It's not about us. It's our response to his beauty and his mercy. It's our response to his integrity and his activity. It's our response to his transcendence and his nearness. This is what we're going to explore in Psalm 96. What is worship? Now, Psalm 96, it's not down in the nitty-gritty details of worship, but it is a kind of a 10,000-foot view. Here in grand sweeps, here is what worship is. And it's going to invite us to consider it together. Psalm 96, let me read it for us before we look at the details. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. There are some passages of Scripture that, if we're honest, are difficult. There are some passages that are hard to really understand sometimes what the Lord exactly is saying, and some that are easy to understand, but they're hard to discern why they're included in Scripture. There are difficult passages in this book. Psalm 96 is not one of those passages. Psalm 96 is very clear. In fact, if we just polled all of us today, and we said, what is this psalm about? What is this psalmist calling for his readers to do in response? We would probably all say something like, uh, worship God. That is kind of the call of this psalm, and that is who we are to worship. This psalm is going to tell us, it's going to remind us who we're to worship, why we're to worship, and how we're to worship. And it starts with the who. Worship the Lord. And we sing, as we just scan through the psalm again, it says at the beginning, sing to the Lord. And if you look at verse 1, you'll notice in your Bible, Lord is capital L-O-R-D. Now, some of you know this. Others maybe don't know why that's there. Anytime in the Bible when you see L-O-R-D capitalized, 
it represents the name of God, Yahweh, the word Yahweh. God's covenant name that he gave to himself to Moses. I am Yahweh. So it's not just any God that's being called to be worshipped here. It is a very particular God. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the Lord. But we look, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his glory. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Worship the Lord. Very clear who this praise is to be directed toward. And then the psalmist uses a bunch of verbs to describe this calling out, this worship. There's rejoicing and proclaiming, roaring and fearing, offering, exalting, and calling, all of it directed toward Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. Psalm 96 is a call to worship God. And it's not only Israel being called. Remember, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. But it's not just Israel being called to worship him. It's all the nations, it says. All the peoples, in verse 3. And families of the peoples, in verse 7. In other words, every person on earth is being invited to declare the worthiness of this God. And then as we keep reading, we see that that's not even enough for the psalmist. It's wonderful. All the people of the earth praising God, but that's not enough. He's worth so much more than that. And so he starts calling upon creation itself to join in. All of the earth, the heavens, the sea and all that it contains, the field and all that is in it, and the trees of the forest. Animate, inanimate objects, all of it scream praise to God. God deserves all worship and all his creation will be the faithful choir because that is what he is owed. As the hymn declares, this is my father's world and to my listening ears all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand, the wonders wrought. It's his and all that's his will praise him. So Psalm 96, very simply, is a call to worship this God. And as we saw, it's not just any God. And the psalmist is hyper-aware. He knows that people have the propensity to worship things other than this God. That's one of the reasons he's reminding them and calling them to worship. But look at verse 4 again. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. See, the psalmist knows, and we know, that humanity has a tendency to worship things and worship people other than the one who is owed it all. You just go through the biblical account, and and we find people worshiping Pharaoh as God, worshiping Caesar as God, worshiping angels, worshiping prophets and apostles and objects. They worship all sorts of things other than Yahweh, the one who is owed this worship. And if we're honest, nothing has changed in thousands of years. People still today worship things other than God. People revere politicians and celebrities, artists and athletes, intellectuals and ideologues. We follow after them like puppies after their mother, you know, tongues out panting after them to see what they will do. We revere them. We enslave ourselves to and are imprisoned by money and reputation and resumes and power and productivity and personalities. All sorts of things call us away from God. If humanity has a superpower, it's that we can create idols out of thin air. We're very good at it. One reformer, John Calvin, he likened the human heart to an idol-making factory. 
just churns them out. I've worked in a factory before. I stood for months and months and months at a, one machine which had two buttons, and a forklift would come and lay a stack of steel here, and one by one I'd take a piece, put it in the machine, push two buttons, stack it here on this pallet, back and forth. And what would happen when I get to the bottom of this pallet? They'd bring me another one. <laughs> Endless. Now, in manufacturing, that monotony, it's productivity. It's a good thing, but in idolatry in the human heart, that's not good, that we just constantly churn out idolatry, and we get to the bottom of the pallet, and we say, I'm done. I've, I've worshipped everything I can. All that's left is to worship God. Well, here comes the enemy with another pallet. He says, keep going. You know, keep on worshipping. We acknowledge that that is our heart's tendency. And so the psalmist comes along and says, worship God. Don't worship those things. Worship God. And almost in Psalm 96, he almost mocks us for that propensity. Verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. That, that word idols, it means futility. It means useless, vapid, nothing. He says they are pathetic, smoke and mirrors, laughably powerless. The psalmist is, is saying that it's almost a joke that they are adored. They can do nothing. Why would we worship those things? But in contrast, the second half of verse 5, but the Lord made the heavens. You have this idolatry that they can, these idols can do nothing, but God, he can do some things, can he? Uh, like create everything, how about? The psalmist is almost pointing out the, the silliness of it all. He's saying only a fool would worship so-called gods instead of or even in addition to, the true God. It's stupidity of the highest order. It doesn't make any sense. Sing to the Lord, O Israel. Ascribe to the Lord, all people. Tremble before him, O creation. Worship God. It's all about him. That's why, before we begin these meetings on a Sunday morning, you may have seen this if you're here early enough, everyone who's involved in leading this meeting will meet up here on the platform to pray. And one of the things we pray for is, Lord, glorify yourself through us. We know what our hearts are like. We need you to come along and glorify yourself. May we, your servants, fade that you, our sovereign, may increase and be glorified. But you got to do it. We want it to be all about you. That's why during these times, these times of corporate worship, we, when we gather as a church, we read about him. We pray to him. We commemorate him. We learn of him. That's why we sing to and about him, saying, Behold our God seated on his throne. Don't look at us. Behold our God, beautiful one I adore. That's why we sing what we sing. It's all about him. And in corporate worship, we don't want to make the mistake also of thinking that this is all worship is, or just the singing, or just when we gather. No, we worship with our lives, don't we? If worship is responding to God's revelation, that happens all day long for us, but let's not pretend that this is not significant. When the people of God gather together to share our voices, stand shoulder to shoulder, and proclaim his worthiness, that is special. And one of the goals of this is to so revere God, Yahweh, all he is, Father, Son, and Spirit, as he's revealed himself to be, that, that this time of worship, it reverberates through the week as we leave. That I leave here, and, and when I go to my workplace, or my classroom, or, or whatever the case may be, my home life, the worship of this place, it carries with me, and I'm just in awe of the God I just stood before with my brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's about him. It's all about him. 
And because our hearts are what they are and they churn up this idolatry, I don't know about you, but I need the reminder. I need you to help remind me. And I need the, the team up here leading music to remind me because my heart will just keep on going pallet to pallet to pallet. We're to worship him. He's who we worship, honor, revere, adore, and celebrate. The question becomes, does he deserve it? Does he deserve, especially the exclusivity of our praise? Does he deserve it? Obviously, I hope most of us say a hearty amen to that. But the psalmist doesn't leave it to our imagination. That's where we want to turn our attention next, from who we're to worship to why we're to worship. And now, Psalm 96, its intention is not to be exhaustive. Here are all the reasons that you should worship God. No, no, it's a sample. Here is some reasons why you should worship this God, not the idols, but worship Yahweh. Why? It boils down to two categories, his person and his work. First, because of who he is, his person, what he's like. I mean, just listen again to how the author of this psalm describes God in this psalm. He's glorious and great, full of splendor and majesty, strong and fearful, faithful and beautiful. That's who he is. And when we're confronted with the reality of God's perfections like that, there should be a response. When we're confronted with that type of significant being, there should be a response. Just think of if this has ever happened to you, where you're confronted with something so significant or special or beautiful that it takes your breath away for a moment. Have you ever had that before? Grand Canyon, hearing Handel's Messiah, a baby taking first steps, a bride coming down the aisle, whatever the case may be, and just it takes your breath away because it's so special, so significant, so wonderful. You say, that's amazing. I wonder if that's just a a fraction of what it will be like to see God in his glory when we do. To take our breath away because of his perfection, because of his beauty, because of his significance. That's what it will be like. And, and here, the author of the psalm he is saying he is beyond comprehension. We know that we can't know God fully. God tells Moses, no one can see me and live. My perfection, my beauty, my glory would consume sinners like you. We cannot know him fully, but we can know him truly. He has revealed himself, how he is. When we look upon him as like in Psalm 96, and we see him, there should be this, this physical response to him, that of worship. We need to grow in our knowledge of him. If we are going to respond to God in worship, then it behooves us to know the God we're responding to. Some people, again, will understand that the governor on worship is how we feel about God or, or what he's shown himself to be in our life in a moment, what we feel, what we've experienced about God. But really, the governor on our worship is what we know about God. That's always been the governor. The ceiling on your worship is how much you know about his person and, as we'll get to in a moment, about his work. And the more you grow to understand who he is, the more his beauty and perfections overwhelm you and the more we respond with worship. So there's the person. Just because of who God is, the psalmist says, worship him because of who he is. But he doesn't stop there. The second reason is because of his work. More specifically, what he's done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he promises he will do in the future. Again, not exhaustive, but the author touches on all of these, first looking to the past in verse 2. 
He says, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. God has saved us, has he not? Those who have trusted in Jesus in the past, we were saved. We were delivered from darkness into light. And that is true because of what happened in the past. And no matter how brutal life gets, no matter how disappointing it can be, and it can be disappointing and hurtful in this life, our destiny is secure because of what happened in the past. We trusted in Christ, his finished work on the cross, the promise he made, and in that moment transferred from darkness into light, never to go back. That's happened. And so we look forward and we say, we praise you. What an opportunity to worship God because of things he's done in the past. Proclaim his salvation, it says. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation. Certainly that is good tidings. But it's not only his salvation. We keep reading in verse 3. Tell of his glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Wonderful deeds. Well, certainly salvation is a wonderful deed. But wonderful deeds go beyond just salvation, don't they? Just for a moment, think about your life, your walk with the Lord. In the past, has God ever led you? Comforted you? Answered prayer? Guided you? Provided for you? Most of us would say, say, yes, all of those things. These aren't wonderful deeds. Can we not look back just like the original hearers of this psalm and say, check, 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 check. He's done so much for me in the past. I want to turn to him and worship. Perhaps the most incredible deed in the past, wonderful deed, is found in verse 5, the second half of verse 5. But the Lord made the heavens. He did create all things after all. So not only is what he's like, but what he's done in the past, he created everything that we see. That's pretty praiseworthy, I would say. So here we just say, why worship God? Because of what he's done. Saving, helping, and creating. The psalm says, proclaim it, tell of it, praise him for it, and then turn your attention to the present. It's not only in the past that he's worked, he's at work right now. We'd say, well, what is he doing right now? Well, according to the psalm, for starters, he's reigning. Verse 10 Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He is the king right now. It's not only in the past, he's reigning right now. He's the sovereign who governs all things, and under his impeccable rule, he is sustaining creation that he brought into existence. Verse 10 says, Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. So not only has God created, but he keeps it going. He sustains it. I don't know if you ever get this thought, maybe it's just me, my unholiness, but you look around this world, you see the chaos and the hurt and the fear, you just wonder to yourself, Lord, why don't you just wipe it out? There's so much sin, there's so much rot, we have destroyed this good creation, why don't you come in and just etch a sketch this thing and start over? And we'd say, you know why? Because he promised not to, that's why. He said he wouldn't. That's the reason. And so he not only created it, but he sustains it. You think about our salvation. Has he saved us in the past? Was there a moment when we had new life, when the Spirit came into us? Yes. And does he keep us saved in the present? He does. So worship him, the psalmist says, for what he's done in the past and what he's doing now in the present. And finally, we look to the future. And it may be the most praise-inducing of all. Because as the psalmist points out, God has promised to establish perfect justice. Verse 10 ends this way. It says, He will judge the peoples with equity. 
And again, we just ask the question to one another, even to ourselves, does anyone here ache for justice in this world? Like, does anyone here just look around the world and say, why are the wicked winning? Why are they getting away with things? Lord, why do they hurt the righteous? Why are the righteous not being vindicated? The people who serve you, why is it so? And God says, one day it will all be made right. Justice is coming. And we look forward and say, hallelujah, I will worship you for that prospect in anticipation for that day because my heart longs for it. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exalt and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. Why? For he is coming to do what? For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That's why. I love here that creation is personified as joining in the worship. Because we oftentimes think of salvation being for humanity, and it is everlasting life for humanity. But creation groans under the curse as well, we learn in Romans. And it's looking forward to redemption and the consummation of all things. So here we see creation itself clapping for joy. We will be liberated. I cannot wait. And so do we join in as we look forward as well. Why are we to worship God? Because of his person and his work. Because of what he's like and because of what he's done. Because of what he is doing and because of what he will do. And again, we just think of his grace shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship God because it's God who is loving and gracious that sent his son in the past, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and be risen from the dead in the past. It's because of who God is, he's merciful and wise, his character, that he offers eternal life to all who trust in him for it in the present. And it's because of who God is, powerful and majestic, that he has promised to keep us for eternity in the future. And so with the psalmist, we say, sing to the Lord indeed. He is worthy of all praise, all worship. So Psalm 96, it's reminded us of who we're to worship, God, and why we're to worship him, because of the things that he is doing and because of who he is. But now we need to end by considering how we're to worship. How do we respond? And as we read it, you notice that this does not give us a step-by-step microscopic view of how to worship, what to do exactly. It doesn't say, ascribe to the Lord two songs, a prayer, two songs, communion, a sermon, a song, and a dismissal. You know, it doesn't give us the order of service that we need to do. That's not what it's saying. Instead, what the psalmist does, again, I said a 10,000-foot view of worship. How should we worship him? And the psalmist says, here's the heart posture that you need when you come before a God like that who's done the things he's done. Here's the mindset that you need, oh, people who belong to God, when you come before a God like this who's about to come and judge. This is how we come. And essentially, Psalm 96 is a call to worship God in totality. It's not rocket science for us. Again, this is a, a simple passage to understand, maybe less simple to apply. But it's saying, here's who God is. Here's what he's like Here's what he's doing and what he will do. How can you hold back when you come to worship him? He's given you everything, past, present, and future. Give him everything in response. 
It's a call to worship him wholly and unreservedly. Hold nothing back. Give it all. That's the posture when we come to worship him. And the psalmist in this passage communicates this all-consuming praise through a literary technique called mirrorism. Maybe some of you have heard of this before, mirrorism. It's a way of speaking that we use two extremes or two opposites to describe the whole. You know, so I might say, you know, I would move heaven and earth to make you happy. That's a mirrorism. I'm taking heaven, earth, extreme opposites, and really what I mean is I will do anything to make you happy. Or they're often common in marriage vows, for better or for worse, for richer, for poor. Opposites, extremes, meant to communicate, well, what happens if I'm like middle of the road wealthy? You know, oh, well, I'm out, right? It doesn't count then. No, no, no. It means that it's the whole thing. That's a mirrorism. And through this psalm, the psalmist really takes opposites and says, worship God in this way and this way. And he doesn't mean specifically in those ways necessarily, but what he means is everything, all that we are. Let me show you a few of them. So first it starts by saying that we're to worship God with novelty, but also with consistency. You say, how can you do both of those things? Well, the point is everything. It starts out by saying, sing to the Lord a new song. Right? Sing to the Lord a new song. Praise him with creativity and ingenuity and innovation. Give him everything. But then it also says praise him with predictability and consistency in verse 2. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. As you go, day after day. Novelty and consistency. Worship God by breaking new ground and by walking well-trodden paths. Worship him in total in every way possible. Next, we're to worship God, we might say, evangelistically and personally. Again, these are opposites. How could I be proclaiming God, but then by myself as well? Someone says, do both. It's everything and all of it. Verse 3, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Shout his magnificence from the rooftop so everyone can hear. Make his awesomeness known to the world. We might say, come to corporate worship. Stand next to brothers and sisters in Christ and bless them with your voice. Some of us, you know, no, it's, it's the participation. We're encouraging one another in this way. We're shouting his praises publicly, evangelistically. But then he says, at the same time, though, worship him privately. Verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. We don't get dressed publicly. We do that by ourselves. We dress ourselves for worship. We dress ourselves in that sense by ourselves, and we offer offerings to God for ourselves. So all at once, the psalmist is saying, worship him from the rooftops, but also go into the sanctuary and worship him rightly by yourself, publicly and privately. Worship him everywhere, in every way. And finally, we're to worship God fearfully and joyfully. Again, they seem antithetical. How can I be scared of God and thrilled to be in his presence? That's exactly the opposite that the psalmist puts before us. On one hand, verse 4, he is to be feared above all gods. Verse 9, tremble before him all the earth. We're dealing with the all-powerful, all-knowing, 
ever-present God of the universe who's coming to judge. There is something of a reverence that has to come with us. Remember, we're responding to how God's revealed himself, and we hear that, and there should be some trepidation. There should be some, some holy fear and reverence for sure. But then on the other hand, verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. It doesn't sound like they're trembling. Verse 12, then all the trees of the forest will sing, what? For joy. So we praise God in fear, yes, but we also praise him in joy as well. Worship him with every emotion, every part of you giving it to the Lord. So we say, okay, so how do we worship? We know who we're to worship and why we're to worship, but how do we worship? Well, with novelty and consistency, publicly and privately, fearfully and joyfully, inside, outside, upside down, it's in totality. It's everything we are. He has given us everything, and so we give him everything in response. We worship God with all of our being, all of our time, all of our resources, faculties, emotions, circumstances, troubles, victories, obedience, weakness, all of our strength. And we hold nothing back from him because he has held nothing back from us of what we need. We're being called in this psalm to give God everything because he's owed everything, because he's given us everything. We worship the one true God because of who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he has promised to do. One author has written this. He says, God declines to sit atop an organizational flowchart. He is the organization. He's not interested in being president of the board. He is the board. And life doesn't work until everyone else sitting around the table in the boardroom of your heart is fired. He is God. There are no other applicants for that position. There are no partial gods, no honorary gods, no interim gods, no assistant to the regional gods. It's all about him. It's all about him. And this is an invitation to us. Like, let's be honest, my heart still does what the heart does, right? It still produces idols that get in the way, but the psalmist comes and says, let's just remind each other who we're dealing with here. And let's call one another and help one another and ask God to help us to respond to him in the way he deserves, to give him unreserved worship, because that's what we're called to do. We give him everything, every fast of our lives, because, and we may not feel it today, but when we stand before him in glory, we will see it fully how much he has given us. And in that day, I want to look back and be able to say, I did it imperfectly, Lord, but with your help, I gave you everything I could with as much consistency as I could. So how do we do that? You know, maybe you're hearing this now and you're saying, I, I don't even know again how to respond to a God like that. And again, like we talked about at the beginning of our time in the Word, maybe you're realizing as we speak now that you actually don't know this God at all. You don't know him. This is not the God that you were taught of in Sunday school growing up, or, or whatever the case may be. And you need to understand that this God is so loving and so faithful that he gave his son for you. That's how much he loves you. You may not even love yourself very much right now. God loves you. The God of the universe loves you so much, he gave his son for you. And that son died on the cross for you so that you don't have to die and he raised a new life, defeating death, and says, I will share my life with you, that eternal life, I will share it with you if you believe in me. So some here today, you hear this, and you say, I don't even know how to respond to this, God. The first thing you need to do 
Don't worry about the worship so much. What you need to do is trust in Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ and have that relationship restored. Then join us in worship. Now for the rest of us, how do we do this? How do we take steps forward in giving God all of our worship? I have no doubt that everyone in here is saying, yeah, I want to do that. (laughs) It's just a matter of how do I do that? How do I take steps forward? And I really think that the answer is, again, simple but not easy. One, again, we need to grow in our knowledge of the God we worship. If worship is a response to who he is and what he's done and what he's doing, we need to know those things. So whatever that means for you, be in the word, be with fellow Christians, grow in your knowledge of this God. He wants to be known. He's written to you. You know, if I wrote to my wife when we were dating and just spilled my heart, here's my past, here's what I hope for our future, and just wrote this long letter to her, and she got and said, thank you for this, and never read it, I mean, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't fill my heart with joy, (laughs) you know, I wrote to her, I want her to know me, my heart and everything, and she receives it and says, that's wonderful, I appreciate the effort. (laughs) In a way, and I don't want to be too crude about it, but God has written us a love letter. He says, I love you, here's who I am, here's what I want for your future, here's what I want for your present, and we say, thank you for the effort, Lord, and we don't read it, I have to imagine that's insulting. No, the Lord says, I want you to know me as I know you. Open my word. Ask the Spirit to help you understand who I am. Fellowship with other pilgrims who are trying to understand me as well. Grow in your knowledge of the Almighty, and your ceiling for worship will grow. It will be raised. The second thing is that we need to do some work in our hearts and say, Lord, where's the idolatry? I know it's there. You know, again, that factory is working overtime. It's always going. Lord, show me where the hurdles are to me worshiping you the things that are distracting me, stealing some of your shine, stealing some of your worship. Show me those things so that I can kill them. I want to worship you, God, with everything I've got because you have given me everything and you are owed everything. That is the cry of all of our hearts as individuals, as families, but also our cry as a church family as well. Let's pray and ask God to help us do that as we pray this psalm back to God. Our God in heaven, we sing a new song to you today. With each new dawn, there is an opportunity to praise you anew, to praise you afresh. We worship you from north to south, from east to west. Everything, Father, we want to give you everything. We declare your greatness because you have saved us. May everyone worldwide hear the good news that God is wonderful. God is great and worthy of praise. God is the creator and worthy of honor. You, our great God, made the heavens and the oceans, the mountains and the meadows, the forests, plains, and deserts. You also, God, made each person who walks this earth and each person sitting in this room. And so we shout from the bottoms of our heart, the Lord Yahweh reigns. He is king. He rules the world. Even today, when our world appears to be on shaky ground, falling apart, when politicians and professors and physicians and kings and business leaders or even Christian leaders believe they are the answer, we say, no, no. God is our only hope. God is the one true God. God is the judge. He will set everything right. He alone is worthy of adoration and praise. And we thank you, Father, for wiping the slate clean, 
Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, once for all, our sins are forgiven by your grace through faith. And every one of us has been granted access to your throne. Thank you. You are the only way to seeing justice and freedom delivered to the nations and given to each of us personally. So let the trees of the forest sing for joy, and we will join in the chorus as well. You are the great I am, the great judge. You rule the world, and we stand in grateful awe of you. We worship the King, all glorious above. Amen.